Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're doing a little something we love to do every now and again. We're reaching into the Metro Connection archives and bringing you some of our favorite stories from the past year. And what a year it's been. The Metro Connection team has trekked all over the D.C. region and reported on stories about pretty much anything and everything. Like a big city theater tucked away on Virginia's eastern shore. It's been here for 25 or 30 years, tiny, tiny, and now bigger and bigger. And now it's here, and it's just remarkable. And neighborhoods in Maryland known as kinship communities. There was a great group of people who were able to stick together and keep their heads up when everybody else was trying to knock their heads off. Also on today's show, we'll revisit a historic housing project in D.C. that's celebrating a big anniversary. We did occasionally hear the word project, and then we would wonder, um, what is a, a project? And we'll meet shock trauma doctors dealing with some very real-life medical drama. Many people want a very controlled environment. This is anything but... But before we get to all that, we'll visit a place in Loudoun County, Virginia. Are we like in the bowels of the place, or is this where you guys walk normally? Okay. Where hundreds of people are immersed in science. So most of the lab space where we do experimental work is upstairs. Often a very special kind of science. Okay, so this is where we do these sort of indoor flight experiments on how dragonflies catch prey, basically. Like this guy, for instance. His name is Anthony Leonardo, and the bespectacled, ponytailed young scientist has led us to the window of the Dragonfly Flight Arena, deep within the main building of the Janelia Farm Research Campus. Now, because this is radio, can you kind of describe what it is we're looking at here? Yeah, so the room is um, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet in size, so it's like a big cube, and at the top of the room we have a Huge number of very bright lights, and so the room is sort of lit to look like noon on a summer day. Leonardo has furthered the summer day theme by keeping the room at a steady 82 degrees, installing artificial grass, and providing a heaping helping of fruit flies for his dragonflies to eat. He's also covered the walls with blown-up photographs of the trees, grass, and flowers you'll find all over Janelia Farm's 689 acres. So, you know, now it has uh, enough appearance of an outdoor sort of realistic environment that dragonflies think this is a good place for me to hang out and forage. Leonardo and his team actually catch the dragonflies on the Janelia campus, which the Howard Hughes Medical Institute built in 2006, so scientists could set up shop in a collaborative and flexible environment. It's internally funded, so you don't apply for any grants. There's no teaching, so all you have to do is your work. And if you head a particular lab, as Anthony Leonardo does, you're pretty much given free reign to study whatever you fancy for a renewable period of five years. A topic that's long fascinated Leonardo is this idea of prey capture. Prey capture is essentially a problem of predicting where a moving target's going to be in the future. And so this is um, both a challenging problem, but also a deeply interesting one, because prediction is sort of like a fundamentally sort of interesting thing about what people and other animals do. You're trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And while you're doing that, there is so much going on and so much scientists don't yet understand. It's like this highly choreographed dance of senses sensing, neurons firing, muscles responding. So this is sort of analogous to like a football player catching a, a ball. And so the objective of the football player is really to watch that motion and then alter its own sort of body movement to sort of reach it at some future time coordinate. Not a bad metaphor, but when you're talking about motion, there's a major difference between football balls and fruit flies. 
the latter of which, by the way, Leonardo gets from some of his fruit fly scientist buddies upstairs. Before you go on, I just want to say some fruit flies have been sort of uh, zigging and zagging around us as we've been talking, and they fly like crazy. I mean, like, they, they're not going in one direction like that football player running after a ball. They are all over the place. more complicated uh, than the football player running after the ball. That's right. But the, but the more complicated it gets, the harder it is, even for a dragonfly. And that's saying a lot, since Leonardo considers dragonflies to be the most sophisticated hunting and flying machines in nature. Outdoors, they catch maybe 95% of what they go after, which is sort of phenomenal. I mean, something like a lion does like 15%. But here's the thing. Compared with a lion or that football player, dragonflies are tiny. A half a gram would be a big dragonfly. But not so tiny that they can't carry a miniature wireless system that records and transmits their neural activity as they zoom around. Leonardo calls it a telemetry backpack. The first two generations of this thing, we also called a backpack, and we attached on the other side of the body, and this caused great confusion for everybody because they're like, it's a front pack. So now it literally is a backpack, though, right? Right. I mean, it doesn't have padded, adjustable straps and a pocket for your cell phone, but it does have this little computer chip with electrodes that stick into the back of an anesthetized dragonfly. And once the animal starts flying and foraging, the backpack detects and sends out signals from what Leonardo calls the steering neurons. The animal's going to fly, catch things, and we're going to monitor the signals coming out of these neurons while the animal's doing it. And they're going to shoot videos of the animal at a whopping 1,000 frames per second to get a more macroscopic view of what's going on. Like, how does the body move through the air towards the prey? Like, what does the flight pattern look like? Just as you might look at the flight pattern of your United flight going from Los Angeles to New York. Once Leonardo goes through all the videos and analyzes all the signals from the backpack, his next job is to look at all that data and say, Well, what the heck does it mean? And we have lots of uh, you know ideas and models on how to do that, but at least you can kind of measure all of the relevant information, and then you have the greatest hope, probably, of actually understanding mechanistically how are the pieces combined. I mean, otherwise you're trying to assemble a 10,000-piece puzzle with 100 pieces. Anthony Leonardo doesn't have all 10,000 pieces yet, but he's well on his way. And he'll soon find out if he'll be able to get even closer, since his Janelia Farm contract goes up for renewal in July 2014. To see photographs of Anthony Leonardo's dragonfly flight arena and to watch a close-up slow-motion video of a dragonfly catching a fruit fly, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now from flies to fish a kind of fish that used to be abundant in the region. Emphasis on used to be. In a few western tributaries of the Chesapeake Bay, the yellow perch's springtime spawning didn't quite go as planned. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. It's just after 9 o'clock in the morning on the South River just outside of Annapolis, Maryland. U.S. fish and wildlife biologists are tossing dozens of fish back into the water. That's a juvenile goose. The batch, which was caught in nets left overnight in the shallows, is mostly made up of catfish and white perch. That's why they're going back into the river. Fred Pinckney, the senior member of the team, is looking for yellow perch, stouter fish in the bass family that can grow 10 inches long. Pickney finally spots a female in the bottom of the bucket. The greenish-yellow coloring and the dark vertical striping is unmistakable. This is a female, very swollen belly there. 
So she has not spawned yet. You can see how wide her belly is. And when we go back to the laboratory, you should be able to get a really good look at how many eggs are contained uh, within this one fish. So this is exactly the stage that we're looking for. The eggs are key. Pinckney and scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey and the Maryland Department of Natural Resources are trying to figure out why yellow perch egg hatching success has dropped from 80 percent in the 1950s to less than 10 percent in the past decade. And that's despite decades of bans on both commercial and recreational yellow perch fishing in many local rivers. So the two rivers that are doing really poorly are the Severn and South Rivers right near Annapolis. The team is under a bit of a time crunch. Yellow perch only spawn for three to five days each spring, and water temperature can affect when and how fast everything happens. The scientists would like to collect 20 fish, 10 females and 10 males. But on this morning, they only get five fish, all female. Three of the five have already ejected their eggs. Pinckney says that isn't necessarily a bad omen for this year's hatch. It's just a bit frustrating. It's mostly luck of the draw. It's just, it's tricky with temperature and, you know, we had the warm weekend and then it got cool and it rained and it's just hard to figure out what's going on. The team decides to reset the nets and come back in a few days, but they'll bring the five fish back to the lab to collect egg and tissue samples. I think he's ready. She, whichever. Vicki Blazer is a fish pathologist for the U.S. Geological Survey. She and her colleague, USGS biologist Luke Iwanowitz, are waiting for the yellow perch back at the Fish and Wildlife Laboratory. This right here is the spleen. So fish have spleens just like we do. They'll take samples of the kidney, liver, brain, and reproductive organs, and the tissue will be examined at the molecular level for abnormalities. The team will pair that data with water chemistry results from the past year and hopefully get a clearer picture of why yellow perch are losing their ability to reproduce. The scientists would also like to test the tissue samples for chemical abnormalities, but there's just one problem. We currently do not have funding to look at the contaminant analysis, so they'll go in the freezer (laughs) and we'll hope for the best. Blazer does have theories about what contaminants they'll find in the yellow perch tissue whenever that analysis is done. She says she expects to see classic legacy contaminants like PCBs and mercury or the banned pesticide DDT. But she also thinks they might find evidence of contaminants that have popped up on the environmental radar more recently. We haven't thought that much about the hormones that all of us excrete or that are used in things like birth control or hormone replacement therapy, all the pharmaceuticals that people are taking now that are getting into the aquatic environment and also into fish. It's also possible that a single contaminant isn't to blame. Environmental scientists around the Bay have spent the past decade studying the level of urbanization around local Chesapeake tributaries and how it coincides with certain fish populations. There's mounting evidence that once urbanization reaches a certain level, just 10 percent pavement versus natural soil, the drainage and chemistry changes to adjacent waterways are too much for fish to handle. Fred Pinckney says, unfortunately, the yellow perch reproduction problems are likely connected to what's happening or what could soon happen to other types of fish. Perch is an indicator of the level of development within a watershed. And so other fish species tend to track along um, in terms of numbers when the perch go down. 
The scientists will find out about the water chemistry results in the next few months, but that contaminant analysis, which could help solve the mystery of the yellow perch once and for all, will have to wait for funding. Luckily, the tissue samples can last for years in the freezer, and Vicki Blazer says with the current federal budget situation, they may have to. I'm Jonathan Wilson. You can learn more about the yellow perch study and see pictures of the fish on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back inside a real-life medical drama. We'll meet the doctors at the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center. It's organized chaos. Every person has a very critical role. As everybody fulfills that role, the machine functions very well. And so it's actually not very stressful. You have very good people you work with. It brings a lot of confidence. That's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're bringing you one of our Hall of Fame shows, where we look back at stories that have really stood out as especially unforgettable. One such story was part of a WAMU series on a topic that can be rather tough to talk about, elder abuse. The Washington region is aging, and over the next 20 years, the number of residents 65 or older is expected to grow dramatically. And as more of us care for elderly loved ones and reach old age ourselves, there's an increasing effort to make sure those golden years are lived with comfort and dignity. But in a study funded by the National Institute of Justice, more than one in 10 seniors reported being abused, neglected, or financially exploited in the previous year. Rebecca Blatt introduces us to one family in Virginia who learned about the issue firsthand. And please note, this story contains some graphic descriptions that might not be suitable for all listeners. James and Etta Jennings moved to the Forest Hill neighborhood of Richmond in 1959. They were young, just married, and the first owners of their red brick ranch house. They had children and then grandchildren who learned to swim in their backyard pool. But when I meet their granddaughter, Jeannie Beidler, at the bottom of the driveway, she begins with a more recent and painful memory. From this point, you can see how steep the driveway is. Um, You could smell the stench of urine and feces. From this point, we already knew, you know, what we were about to walk into. The only sounds in the neighborhood now are birds chirping and the occasional hum of a cooling unit. But as we approach the house, Jeannie says that day, July 27, 2010, paramedics, police, and Adult Protective Services social workers were on the scene. At this point when we got here, um, my grandfather was confined to a chair in the living room. Um, He barely had on any undergarments, and he was at the brink of death. The temperature in the house was more than 100 degrees. Black mold stretched across the walls. Beidler's grandmother was in a bedroom down the hall. She was on a broken bed. Uh, The mattress had no linens, maggots swarming. Just the most disgusting smell I've ever experienced. 
Paramedics rushed James to the hospital. His blood pressure was high and he was in and out of consciousness. Etta followed later that evening. Both were malnourished and suffering from dementia. Their son, Jeannie Beidler's uncle, was supposed to be caring for them. Instead, he cashed tens of thousands of dollars in checks from Etta, leaving the Jennings deeply in debt and the house beyond repair. Beidler has a master's degree in social work from George Mason University, and she had made plenty of home visits in her career. But she says overwhelmed is the only word to describe how she felt that day. An overwhelming sadness for my grandmother to see somebody um, who I've always known to probably be the strongest woman I've ever met. She's feisty and spirited to think, how could this have happened to her? I can't just think of a sadder moment in my life. Beidler says growing up, her grandmother was a friend and confidant. They went shopping together and had weekend slumber parties. She was the highlight of my childhood. And so the day that um, we came and I saw her as she was, and I saw the house as it was, every ounce of me knew that, that I would make this right. It's hard to imagine how a family home could sour and rot as the Jennings had, or how somebody could watch two elderly parents wasting away. But neglect is not uncommon, especially for the most vulnerable seniors, who are also at risk for physical and emotional abuse and financial exploitation. That's a broad spectrum of victimization, perpetrated by family members or neighbors or con artists, who win the trust of an older person and then violate that trust for their own gain. I believe elder abuse is a national crisis. That's Kathy Greenlee, Assistant Secretary for Aging at the Federal Department of Health and Human Services and head of the Administration for Community Living. She calls the burden of elder abuse enormous, and she says the field is decades behind efforts to address other types of abuse, including child abuse. In this society, we started and led with children. We moved to the area of domestic violence and sexual assault. Each of those fields can contribute and inform what needs to happen with regard to elder abuse, but it certainly hasn't been coordinated and hasn't had a comprehensive approach. Financial exploitation of seniors is estimated to total $2.9 billion a year. Victims of abuse are more than twice as likely to die prematurely and more than four times as likely to be admitted to a nursing home or rehab center. With more older people, we will have more elder abuse. That's just the numbers, and this is the time to pay attention. There are significant obstacles to addressing elder abuse. Sometimes victims are dependent on their abusers and fear what will happen if they lose that support. Many have dementia and are not able to testify in court. Dozens of federal, state, and local agencies are involved, and sharing data among them has been a challenge. And then there's the issue of money. In 2010, Congress passed the Elder Justice Act, which authorized about $750 million in funding. But Bob Blancato, national coordinator of the Elder Justice Coalition, says advocates are still waiting for lawmakers to release the money. The good news is we have a law. The second part of the process is appropriating dollars that actually go into the streets. We're fighting for that second effort right now. Federal dollars help support local agencies that investigate claims of abuse. Blancato says many of them struggle to keep up with the calls coming in. You cannot stop what you don't report. And the effort now is to enhance reporting. But if you do that too well and you don't have the resources, uh, then you're really creating a difficult problem of that uh, was unintended. Back in Richmond, Jeannie Beindler is sifting through crates of documents, photos, court orders, and dozens of canceled checks, each one written to her uncle and signed by her grandmother with a memo line for household expenses. 
and I can go through and pick anyone for mom, for bills, bills for mom. And I remember getting this pile and going, oh my gosh. Every day he was getting a check. Beidler's grandparents died within a couple of years of the intervention. Her uncle pleaded guilty to two felony counts of abuse or neglect of an incapacitated adult and was incarcerated for a little less than three years. Looking back, Beidler says there were people who could have intervened earlier. Police, she called previously, even the cashiers at the convenience store where her uncle cashed many of her grandmother's checks. Don't ignore that pit in your stomach that this isn't right. Don't minimize your place. You could have potentially saved somebody's life or spared my grandparents some of the torture that they endured. Beidler says it's a matter of looking out for abuse and choosing not to look away when you find it. I'm Rebecca Blatt. So if you've watched any TV over the past, I don't know, several decades, you've no doubt come across the ubiquitous medical drama. What is it? Explosion at a power substation. Multiple burn and blast victims three minutes out. How many? At least eight. Make sure you only clear the trauma rooms. Jerry, get the blood bank to send all their own name. Dawn, make sure we have enough morphine and rapid infusers. CIA. You want to be an ER doc? This is the fun part. The doctors on these shows often seem to spend their days and nights winging it through crisis after crisis. And that's not too far from what happens in real life at the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. The center sees more than 8,000 severely injured patients each year. And when it opened its doors more than 50 years ago, it was pretty much the first of its kind. Nowadays, it's thought to be among the best trauma centers in the nation. Jacob Fenston brings us this look behind the scenes. It's a beautiful Friday afternoon, and the sun is shining on the roof of the Shock Trauma Center in downtown Baltimore. Right now, I'm waiting for Trooper 1 to show up. Trauma technician Tony Cristiani. Trooper 1 is one of Maryland's seven medevac helicopters. It's a fall coming in, yeah, from over on the eastern shore. Guy was on a ladder, and he fell off a ladder about 10 feet or 6 feet. Cristiani rushes out as Trooper 1 touches down. Seconds later, the patient is in the trauma unit downstairs, where about a dozen staff members in pink scrubs swarm around him. He fell, then passed out. He fell, hit the ground, passed out. When things are going well, it's truly like an orchestrated ballet. Anesthesiologist John Blanco has worked here for 22 years. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. They know where they are. They know what's just happened. They know what's coming next. There's no repetition. Nothing's missed. Every patient who rolls through the elevator doors here comes in with grave injuries. So the decisions that doctors and nurses make in an instant can easily mean life or death. But there's not really time to get hung up on that when another patient's already on the way. Usually Friday afternoon around 4 o'clock, 4.30, it's like somebody flipped a switch and things get busy, and they get real busy real fast. Especially when the weather's nice. People hit the road in cars and motorcycles, or they're out on the streets causing trouble. This particular afternoon, things do get very busy. The phone starts ringing, and it doesn't stop. Okay, no problem. Trooper 6, 13 and 17, industrial, category 8, priority 1, and it's, they're injured by a flailing hose. Okay, thank you, sir. All right, bye. Of the front driver's side of 
There's going to be two patients on Trooper 1. Gunshot wound to the uh, left buttocks region uh, going to the left groin. I can't quite tell if it made it out of the groin or not. Excuse me, pardon You know, we've just admitted 15 people. It's kind of busy. It's not the busiest we've ever been, but it's kind of busy. Dr. Tom Scalia is the physician-in-chief in charge of the shock trauma center. Here, he says, doctors don't have the luxury of time to order a bunch of tests, then sit back and think. We have to make decisions sometimes based not on the, the greatest information, so you go with a lot of clinical feel, a lot of gut sense. Patients keep coming in, and Scalia makes the rounds with a gaggle of residents. Got the chart rack? Oh, chart rack. Grab the chart rack. Meanwhile, as the beds here fill up, staff swiftly shuffle patients to other floors to make room in the trauma unit. Right behind them, Elise Mitchell is among the women in blue scrubs cleaning up for the next patient. They're coming in, they're coming in, they're coming in. we got to be fans right along with them. Everyone here seems to thrive on this fast pace. Dr. Scalia compares it favorably to a roller coaster. Nurse Ellen Plummer has another analogy. Your adrenaline's going all the time, pretty much, and you're almost like a racehorse waiting to go out of the gate. She says it's something you get used to, 12-hour shifts with constant adrenaline. But for patients, whatever event brought them here was unexpected and often life-changing. These patients and the families, they don't wake up today knowing that they're going to get in a car crash and they're going to get injured, and, and they have no preparation for that. That's the bad part of the job, she says, having to break the news to a family or finding a child's note to Santa in the pocket of a woman who just died after a car crash. We can't save everybody, and that's that's the worst part of this job, totally the worst part of this job. Even though they can't save everyone, the doctors and nurses at Shock Trauma do save most. Of the dozens of patients who arrive here in ambulances or helicopters each day, 96% survive their injuries. I'm Jacob Fenston. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit West Lanham Hills, Maryland, and the Arboretum community of Northeast D.C. My name is Jean Mason. I'm in the Arboretum community, and I've been here about 40 years. The Arboretum community sits right outside the gates of the National Arboretum off Bladensburg Road in New York Avenue in Northeast Washington. We love living next to the National Arboretum. My twin sister, Joan Black, matter of fact, refers herself as the official tour guide. We often have folks who come in, and even, even if they don't come visit different people in the neighborhood, if we just see people in the National Arboretum who are looking around and appear to be a little lost, we kind of give them little private tours and, and, and show them different spots. Our neighborhood is very, very stable. We don't change a lot. Folks tend to uh, live here forever, and often when they go home, their children will live here or their grandchildren. I love that it hasn't changed. I like knowing my neighbors. I like being able to walk down the street and know everybody by name, and everyone speaks to you and smiles or, or feels comfortable if they need help to ask. We are a very close-knit neighborhood. 
I'm Lee Rowe. I'm 51 years old, and I live in West Lanham Hills. It's bounded on the south by Route 450, and on, on the north by Ellen Road, and on the east by East West Highway, or Route 410. Well, West Lanham Hills is a, a single-house residential neighborhood, and the location, of course, was one of the prime reasons we came here. But the other thing is that the neighbors look out for each other. Uh, we've had people living here for decades, and we've been here for about uh, 16 years now. Most of the houses were built in 1940, 1941. We've had people who've lived here since that time, and we have new people coming in. So it's just a, a sort of a neighborly neighborhood, and uh, we enjoy living here. The biggest change is the influx of Hispanic families in West Lanham Hills. So uh, our newsletter is now in both English and Spanish in order to reach out to them. You know, they brought in uh, their own their own culture, and some of them, some of them have their own businesses, and so we're trying to uh, do what we can to, to reach out to them from being neighbors as well as being part of the association. We heard from Gene Mason in D.C.'s Arboretum Community and Lee Rowe in West Lanham Hills. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Next, we'll visit Maryland's one-of-a-kind kinship communities. The overwhelming thing for me when I first got here was understanding who was related to who. After three years, I think I have it. And then something will pop up and I'll realize, I didn't realize that you were related to this person in that way, so I never really have it. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you one of our Hall of Fame shows, where we give another listen to some truly standout stories from the past year. In just a bit, we'll visit a historic D.C. housing project that's celebrating a major anniversary, and we'll head to Virginia's Eastern Shore, where at one truly distinctive theater, everything really is coming up roses. But to kick off this part of the show, we'll visit Montgomery County, Maryland, home to about 40 communities that played a very particular role in the region's and nation's African-American history. They were all settled by freed slaves in the 19th century and include places like Littonsville, Lincoln Park, Sugarland, Jerusalem, Tobytown, Stewarttown, Kengar, Sandy Spring, and Scotland. They're often referred to as kinship communities. I don't know the formal history of the origins of the name kinship. Author and journalist John Muller hails from the Sandy Spring area. But I'll just say from my uh, experiences growing up, for example, there was the Briscoe family. The Briscoe family grew up right around Zion and Brookville Road. They had a very large extended family. And like um, a fellow I went went to school with, he called people his, like, his brothers or cousins that didn't necessarily have like the same last name. I don't think they were of blood relation, but they grew up in the same area Their parents might have grown up with each other. Their grandparents grew up with each other. And so you have these bonds, these relationships that are passed down from generation to generation. And indeed, these generations go back quite a ways. 
As Muller drives me around his old stomping grounds, we stop at a cemetery right next to Mount Zion United Methodist Church, which many people say was the first church in the county to be purchased by blacks. Can we see dates on any of these headstones? See, look, now this person, 103 years old, 1841 to 1945. Wow, long lives here. Sandy Spring is a relatively rural community. While it was settled by Quakers in the 1700s, in the 1800s it became this enclave for emancipated slaves. They had kind of the ability, let's say, to police themselves. It was uh, very self-contained. But since then, successors to these freed slaves have seen that self-contained security decline. A few years ago, Montgomery County told residents of Farm Road that, in short, their private road does not exist. The county says the road isn't on any official records, so the residents don't have any addresses. So basically, they don't have a right to use that land. The residents' federal complaint against the county was dismissed in 2011, but a group called Save Sandy Spring continues to fight. And several kinship communities away... In Scotland, Maryland. This is Rebecca Shear. Hi, Rebecca. I'm Bernard. This is nice Bernard. To meet you, Bernard. People definitely know a thing or two about fighting. We're in the historic Scotland AME Zion Church on Seven Locks Road, where Pastor Adrian Nelson is introducing me to 63 year old Bernard Scott. I am a resident of Scotland for 45 years. I no longer live in Scotland, but I've adopted Scotland as my home and the Scotland residents as my family. And I hope they feel the same way, too. Scott has become an amateur historian on the town of Scotland, which first came into the hands of an ex-slave in 1880. But by the 1960s, the place was pretty much a mess. Uh, When I came in this area in 1968, this Seven Locks Road was a dirt road. Uh, I know this is radio, but this is basically what the, uh, the housing in the area looked like. As you can see, these are basically... Shacks with no plumbing, no inside bathrooms, and right up the road there, most of the well-to-do Potomac residents were already there. So this area here was being uh, neglected. That word, neglected, that may be an understatement. In 1964, Scotland was so run down that the county nearly condemned it, which is why in 1965, Black residents and some of their white neighbors formed a new kind of union. Save our Scotland, SOS. To save this town they held so dear. Another minister was here at the time, and I can't remember saying it, but he told me, I said, I'll die for Scotland. Well, all these years later, 77-year-old Betty Thompson is alive and well in Scotland and full of memories of how she and her fellow SOSers tackled the community's housing problems. First, we raised money by combining the residents' land and selling all but 12 acres to the Montgomery County Park and Planning Commission. Then, after fighting to obtain zoning rights, they went through the Department of Housing and Urban Development to create 100 brand new houses, 75 to rent, And then 25 of us brought it home. And by 1971, residents of Scotland were able to move into their own townhomes, all equipped with heating, electricity, and water. They also finally got a laundromat, a daycare center, a community center, and public transportation. And Bernard Scott says it was all thanks to that age-old tradition of kinship. In a very difficult time, there was a great group of people who were able to stick together and keep their heads up when everybody else was trying to separate them and knock their heads off. 
Scott says although Scotland is no longer as thriving as it once was, he has high hopes for its future. Residents past and present continue to gather each August for Scotland Community Day. And the more than 100-year-old Scotland AME Zion Church is still a major hub for what Scott calls the Scotland family. Family is an institution where love lives. And if there are 17 people living in one house, they're going to fuss, they're going to argue, they're going to step on each other's toes, but they're never going to stop loving each other. And that's the way Scotland is. Back in Sandy Spring, John Muller says that's the way all kinship communities in Montgomery County have traditionally been because of their residents' many shared experiences. You know, a shared experience would be surviving, thriving as a community against like all odds or against the prevailing attitudes of the day. Everyone essentially works to support the whole community. And in turn, in true kinship, the whole community works to support them. Since this story first aired, Montgomery County granted addresses to the residents of Farm Road in Sandy Spring. Now they'll be able to start the process of building on their land. Back to the district now, let's go to the northeastern quadrant of the city, to the intersection of 21st Street Northeast and Benning Road. That's where you'll find Langston Terrace, the district's first public housing project. When it opened in 1938, 2,500 families applied to move in. That's nearly 10 times the number of homes available. On its 75th anniversary, Emily Berman takes us back to the early days of Langston Terrace to learn why its construction was such an important moment for Washington. Back when she was a young girl, Eloise Greenfield used to spend a lot of time on the Langston playground. She liked to look at the stone sculptures of animals. Her favorite was the frog. You could sit on the frog's head and you could see the Washington Monument. You could see all over the city. The frog and Langston Terrace, all the buildings that surround it, were commissioned in the mid-1930s by the Public Works Administration, part of Roosevelt's New Deal. Greenfield's family was one of the 274 selected to live there, and she moved in on her ninth birthday, May 17, 1938. Her new home was a brick row house like many others she'd lived in before. The major difference was that it was just our family living there, whereas before we had been sharing houses with other families. The families who moved in here maybe hailed originally from North Carolina, parts of rural Virginia. Some were native Washingtonians. Kelly Quinn is a historian at the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. And as we walk around Langston, she explains how in the early 20th century, the district had a housing shortage. Thousands of African-American families had moved here to work for the federal government. Some worked as elevator operators, janitors, messengers, clerks. Remember that in the 1930s, having a government job for African Americans was really a sign of status and success. Not only the designers, but the bricklayers and tradesmen were all pretty much African American. It wasn't that the federal government was benevolent and said, oh, we want to hire these black architects. It's that black intellectuals lobbied for placement in these kinds of jobs in the federal government projects that were being designed specifically for African Americans. 
Hilliard Robinson, the architect of Langston, was a native Washingtonian and had been studying architecture all over the world. He drew his inspiration for Langston from public housing in Europe. The buildings, which are still occupied to this day, take up one city block called a super block in urban planning speak, with low-rise apartment buildings along the perimeter and cubic two-story row houses in the center, all surrounding a big courtyard. One of the things I think that is so beautiful about Langston is the color of the buildings, and so that it's two-tone brick, a darker brown at the base, and then a buff brick at the top. Residents have said the bricks look like stacks of butter. But there was also a lot of concrete in the complex, which is long-lasting, easy to maintain, and actually, Quinn says, quite expensive. The government invested well in these projects because they were building high-quality buildings that were using supplies that would help stimulate the economy. Pathways connected rows of houses, letting neighbors walk to the library, to the rec center, and to school without ever crossing a city street. And for kids, it was pretty much a paradise. I've always remembered Langston. I've always, I've, if, I, if I had a dream sometime, I would dream about Langston. My name is Barbara Watkins Hagens. My parents first moved into Langston in 1948. Now I was two years old. Hagen's house, she recalls, was on the inside court facing the playground. We had little, the girls would do double dutch, and the, the boys, what can I say? They would be playing the ball, and our mothers would be talking. Hagen's lived in Langston until she was a sophomore at Howard University. I do remember all the doors were painted blue, and everyone had little red lawnmowers. Even though it was not our property, we treated it as it was. And we did occasionally hear the word project. And then we would wonder, um, what is a, a project? Because we, you know, we felt that we were rich as children because our parents never told us. As we walk away from Langston, Kelly Quinn stops in front of a concrete water fountain built into the base of a graceful staircase entrance to the block. And to think about water fountains is really a symbol of segregation. And so for families, black families who had come from the South where they would have seen regularly colored and white water fountains, to come to D.C. and then to move into a place where at the foot of the courtyard and playground there was this colorful water fountain with no signs, just this kind of beautiful concrete. I think it's these kind of very small gestures that made the urban space more habitable and more dignified and let black families know that they were welcome in a different kind of way. Langston, Quinn says, was a housing project designed with the human experience in mind. We like to run into neighbors. We like to have amenities nearby. And sometimes we like to sit on the head of a frog, lean back, and look out over the city. I'm Emily Berman. This story came to us through the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for us to get input on upcoming projects and for you to reach out to us. You can read more about the network and see historic photos of Langston Terrace on our website, metroconnection.org. So in this part of the show, we've been to Maryland, we've been to D.C. Now let's take a trip to Virginia. 
eastern shore of Virginia, to be precise. It's a quiet agricultural corner of our region, but one of its small towns is getting a reputation for something other than farming, namely high-quality theater. Coastal reporter Brian Russo takes us to Onancock, Virginia, to check out a production at its theater, the North Street Playhouse. The drive from Ocean City to Onancock mostly takes you past farmland. and In the summer and fall, you'll see lots of roadside stands with locals selling the bounty of that farmland. But then, once you get to Onancock, you'll find this. You expect me to believe that implicit in everything you've said, that this entire conversation isn't at least partly informed. Am I right by, by the issue of <coughs> racism? Are you out of your mind? I have no idea where to <laughs> That's a scene from the regional premiere of Bruce Norris's Pulitzer Prize winning play, Claiborne Park which was recently on stage at the North Street Playhouse in Onancock. It tackles some very heavy subjects, like race, real estate, and people's often volatile values. New York Times called this play darkly humorous, and it is wickedly funny. Here's a scene where the characters try to be politically correct, all while stumbling around their main point, which is they're uncomfortable with the idea of having a housing project near their neighborhood. If you're placed in some faceless institutional project, well, I mean, you know, like it or not, that kind of environment is not conducive to, to uh, uh, formation of community. It's horrible. Well, with the effect on children? The North Street Playhouse is the only regularly producing theater on Virginia's eastern shore. And over the past quarter century, it's staged 139 different plays for local audiences. Betsy Pinder has been coming to the North Street Playhouse for years. And she says artistic director Terry Bliss is the reason for the theater's success. Terry Bliss, you know, is uh, from, her family was part of the Botter Theater. And so she really is the reason this is doing what it's doing. And, and it's been here for the almost 25 or 30 years in tiny, tiny, and now bigger and bigger. Right. And now it's here, and it's just remarkable. Yeah. Could you imagine Onancock without this theater being a part of it? Not really, because it really brings in an art, artistic the people that come in and uh, shows that they bring in, and it's just really, really adds to an Ancock. Terry Bliss basically founded this theater at her kitchen table. She says what the Playhouse has become has surpassed even her wildest hopes and dreams. I came here initially with a job as an attorney at Legal Aid and um, landed in Onancock. And I can remember the one of the first times driving down the main street and past the Hopkins house, which is farther down near the water, and thinking that will be the summer residence for the stock company when we do that. So it's always been something that's been in my heart and in my mind. When I had the opportunity to get some people together, and it was around the, the um, kitchen table, it built over the years. We started out going in a lot of different, performing in a lot of different venues. And our first quote unquote permanent home was for North Street around the corner, which was the total building was about 1,300 square feet. And this building, we bought this building in 1999, and it is just under 9,000 square feet. So the size of the stage here, or the audience, is the entire size of the stage and the audience at 4 North Street. One of my goals always was for us to get to a point where people would come and see shows that we produced 
even if they hadn't heard of them, because they knew that we were going to get a good, they were going to get a good show. And I think that certainly we have reached that goal. One of the joys for me is always seeing a cast come together as a group and bond and come to depend on one another. So, so have we reached, a, a, you know, the goals? Have we? Uh, probably we have exceeded what I initially thought. I do remember thinking some years ago, it'll be interesting, there were a few things going on arts-wise and theater-wise, and I thought, and it was 95, and I thought, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see who's still around in 10 years, mm-hmm. and here we are, <laughs> and we are the ones who are still around. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it is all a uh, work of joy and a work from the heart. That was Terry Bliss of the North Street Playhouse talking with WAMU's Brian Russo. And if you happen to have plans to head out to Onancock anytime soon, the North Street Playhouse will present Footwork and Footlights, a dance program, August 16th and 17th. We have more information on our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, Rebecca Blatt, and Brian Russo. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll look back at some of the most memorable characters we've featured on Metro Connection. We're calling the show Profiles, and we'll revisit a Vietnam vet with a lifelong debt to a fellow soldier. We'll burn the midnight oil patrolling with a rookie cop. And we'll go on an avian adventure with a Washingtonian known as the Birdman. There are disappointing days, a lot of those, but there are very exciting days, and that's what brings you out every time. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.